Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. I'm your host, Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. Today, my guest is Jenny McFarland, a returning guest from episode six, a nearly lifelong Arizonan that loves exploring different habitats in southeast Arizona. She currently works as a conservation biologist for the Tucson Audubon Society and coordinates the Important Bird Areas Program and other bird survey conservation projects. Jenny organizes several large-scale community science efforts in southeast Arizona each year, including the elegant Trogon surveys of five Sky Island mountain ranges that she actually participated in this morning. When she's not surveying or coordinating, you might find her counting a large number of birds in a short period of time. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. So earlier today, you were out on an elegant trogon survey that you've been a part of for over 10 years. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I sure can. So it's a really large bird survey effort that we do every year. It operates almost like a census of nearly the entire breeding range of elegant trogon in the United States. So we do five different Sky Island mountain ranges over sort of three weekends in May, um, one per day of those three weekends. And today was the first one of the five. So we did the Atascosa Mountains, which is an area west of Nogales Mm -hmm. that has places people may be familiar with, like Peña Blanca Lake or Sycamore Canyon or Walker Canyon. It's a really nice mountain range. It's it's much smaller than the other four that we do, though, and a little lower elevation, which is why we do it first. Yeah. And... When you go out there, what is what does your morning look like? So this area is, I think, probably the closest to the international border of mm-hmm. the five that we do. So, And it's also the area that has the least amount of cell phone coverage. Okay. So it's a bit remote. You're going west of I-19, um, west of Nogales, and it's pretty beautiful in there. Like the, the rocks and the scenery is really nice out there. It's beautiful. So everyone has a route that they've been assigned all my different teams of people who volunteer Mm -hmm. and they go out to their start point. We're supposed to start our surveys around Mm 6am and then you spend the morning hiking through your assigned route, which tend to be Canyon drainages. That's what Trogons really prefer. And then you spend the morning walking through your area, listening and looking for elegant Trogons. Hmm. And this morning, how many did you see or how did that go? Yeah, I'm not sure how everyone else has done yet because we just did it this morning. By yeah. the end of the season, I have a, a wonderful map of where all the trogons were sighted oh, nice. from people's data. But for myself today, I did an area of called Peña Blanca Canyon, which mm-hmm. is runs just south of the, I think, pretty well-known Peña Blanca Lake. But on the other side of the road, uh, Ruby Road going south, Peña Blanca Canyon is a really nice piece of habitat. And we had at least three territories of elegant trogons. So mm. I had what was seemingly a pair of trogons and then at least two single males in addition in their own territories. Okay. Now let's move on to the focus of today's episode, which is a continuation of the last one. Except this one will dive a little deeper into the details since the birdathon has already occurred. And we can talk about the day itself. Can you walk us through the day, starting with why everyone met at 3 a.m.? Yeah, Birdathon is so much fun. And my team is a little bit intense. The renegades have always been very much into it. And the goal is to try to see as many species as possible. It's a fundraiser, a bit like a walkathon, where people will 
pledge so much money per species you find. And that really like pushes you on to get as many species as you can to sort of fundraise as much as possible. Now, we decided to take it a little bit easier this year and try to maximize our fun as much as possible over sort of like wearing ourselves out completely for the birdathon. Because usually in past years, we would meet at 2 (laughs) a.m. So we decided to, you know, take it easy and meet at 3 a.m. this time. And the main reason we meet so early is to try to get some of those night birds before the sun comes up because owls can be pretty difficult. And by the end of the birdathon, you're pretty tired and you're dragging and it's hard to sort of get yourself moving again to go get those final owls. So we try to get them at the beginning. And owls operate really similar to daytime birds. So daytime birds sing the most or sort of the most detectable early in the morning and then in the evening. And it's actually similar with night birds where they call most frequently right after the sun goes down and right before it comes up again. So you have a similar kind of concept looking for owls or listening for owls rather right before the sun comes up is really very productive. It's much Mm. more productive than the middle of the night. Mm. So we met at 3 a.m. here in Tucson. We sort of rushed down I-19 towards Madera Canyon and we did quite well on the owls. We got elf owl pretty quickly at mm. the lower elevations. Mm-hmm. And then moving up, we got whiskered screech owl, Mexican mm. whippoorwill. And then at the top, we got um, real lucky with hearing a flammulated owl. Oh, So that's a pretty small owl with a, a pretty small call. Mm-hmm. They're not very loud, but um, we were lucky there was no wind mm. that time, you know, right before the sun came up. And we could hear that flammulated owl really, really clearly. So that was great to just knock off those owls right at the beginning. So that's sure. why we meet at 3 a.m. So that made it worth waking up at 3. It really did. And I have to say, doing 3 a.m. versus 2 a.m. I think made a huge difference. Because in the past, when we do 2 a.m., that feels like the middle of the night. That feels like I never went to bed. But 3 a.m. does sort of feel like just really early morning versus last night. (laughs) So I thought it made a big difference emotionally for me. (laughs) So then after getting some of those night birds, now you're getting the early morning birds. What were some of the ones you went to next? So we were in Madera Canyon for those... Owls. This is very strategic Mm because that's a really good place to be as it starts to get light. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing very early birding, very early morning birding like that, you do get this dawn chorus effect Mm. where many, many species, like anyone who's there who sings will almost certainly sing right at dawn, especially in the spring. Mm. So that is incredibly hectic because we were sort of racing around trying to get as many species as we can by by ear, detected by their song. So once we got the owls sort of up canyon and it was the sky was starting to lighten, you know, sort of around, you know, 430, the sky starting to lighten. We sort of went back down to the bottom of the canyon to the lowlands and listened for those low elevation birds to start Mm -hmm. singing. And boy, it just sort of like, it just took off. Tons and tons of species were singing and we were just ticking off things like Canyon Toey, Yellow Warbler, Lucy's Warbler, uh, Northern Cardinal, Pyroloxia. So all these sort of lower elevation birds Mm -hmm. all just just started calling and singing, which was great. We were just ticking off a lot of species. And then we started working our way back up the canyon to the higher elevations to listen for, um, you know, higher elevation birds. And we stopped at Santa Rita Lodge at the feeders mm-hmm. to see who was coming into the feeders. And so that was sort of our strategy. We went up the canyon in the dark and then came back down for the dawn chorus and then went back up the canyon before we took off again. Okay. So now you're done with Madera Canyon. You've made it through that chorus of birds at dawn. And now your next spot. Well, we did Box Canyon first. Okay. So Box Canyon is this lovely road that 
is a bit of a shortcut. If you're trying to get to Highway 83 from Madera Canyon, so that's sort of the way to get to Patagonia, Mm -hmm. one way to do that is to go through Box Canyon Road, Mm -hmm. which uh, many people may have just used just as a shortcut in general. And and it's very scenic. It's a beautiful road. Uh, The road hugs a canyon wall as it goes through. And so you have sort of the drainage below you and beautiful cliffs and canyon wall above you from the road. And it turns out it's a really, really good spot for certain particular birds as well. So we got some really good species moving through Box Canyon and as well as having a shortcut towards Patagonia. Yeah. What were some of the highlights of Box Canyon? We had a really nice oriole singing. So Box Canyon is lovely in the sense that it has a lot of ocotillo. And when they bloom, it attracts a lot of hummingbirds and orioles to it. And you get some little spots, really particular spots along the road where you get some rarities too. And we Mm. did find one of them. But we had Lucifer Hummingbird in there, which is pretty typical for that canyon. They like the Ocotillo and like Scott's Oriole and Hooded Oriole and and some pretty good pickups. We had Rock Wren. That's a really good space. There's a lot of rocks. It's a really good place for Rock Wren. And right at a particular bend in the road where there's a waterfall, like wasn't any water coming out of it, but you can see from the wear and the rock that it's sort of a waterfall location. Right there, we did find the elusive uh, five-striped sparrow. We got oh. great looks at it and got a photo of it and everything. And then we were able to sort of just keep going through box towards the grasslands yeah. and to Patagonia and then over to Las Cienegas grasslands. Hmm. Talking about the Orioles, what other places in town might you see some of those same Orioles? Yeah, so Scott's Oriole is a pretty particular high elevation mm-hmm. Oriole. So you're going to have to sort of go up into some of the... Like Box Canyon is a good spot, but up into Madera Canyon, too. They're a little bit higher elevation oriole. Mm. But in town, in Tucson, you mm-hmm. can get hooded oriole pretty okay. pretty easily. They do come into people's yards. They're very attracted to palm trees. Okay. So areas that have palm trees, like uh, Agua Caliente Park, is a mm. really good place to look for them. They also love oranges. All of the Orioles oh. really like oranges. So people who feed birds and put out sort of a, an orange sliced in half and stick it to you know a thorn or something on their tree, yeah. that's a really good way to attract Orioles. I was going to say, because I've only seen a hooded Oriole once, and it was at the orange tree in my yard, and I'd never seen one again. And I wondered, where else might you see them? Yeah. Okay, so we're done with the Box Canyon. Now we're at Patagonia, where I actually got to join you all, and... I was just warming up, but you guys had already been going for a number of hours, so you were you were in the zone. Yeah. There, what uh, stood out to you at Patton's Center when we went there first? What what stuck out to you there? Yeah, so we went to the Tusnabon Patton Center for hummingbirds first in Patagonia. It's a wonderful spot. It's got lots of feeders, but it also is placed right along Sonoida Creek, so it mm-hmm. gets a lot of good birds. And a species that we particularly were looking for there was the violet crown hummingbird. Mm. And we did get it. It took a little while. We had to wait a few minutes, um, at least 10, 15 minutes, which feels long on a (laughs) bird-a-thon where you're trying to get all the birds. But we were staring at the feeders that we know they like. And um, a beautiful violet crown hummingbird did come into the feeder. We had a few other good pickups there, too, like Inca Dove, which we Mm -hmm. didn't see anywhere else during the day. And then from there, we went down to that Patagonia Roadside Rest, mm-hmm. which is uh, you know along Highway 83, a little further south. And that's a pretty famous spot for birding. Like a lot of people, birders are familiar with that yeah. spot. Uh, rarities have turned up there for many decades occasionally. It's a pretty well-known spot. Mm-hmm. But there was a particular rarity that's been hanging around that spot right now and that's rufus cap warbler Mm -hmm. we did not see it because we only had like a few minutes Minutes. there and there was a whole 
crew of birders there when we pulled up and no one had seen it that morning. So we just sort of looked for other birds and we did get a good pickup there. We got white-throated swift, Mm -hmm. which is, I don't think we saw anywhere else. Uh, on our birdathon day, so that was pretty great. And they like the cliffs there, twittering and, and zooming around. That's a spot where we've looked for them before. And some years we miss them. Hmm. You kind of have to be there when you can hear them calling and you know see them zooming around. Right. But then they go off hunting. So if you're there the wrong period of time, you miss them. Yeah. But we did get them this year at that roadside rest. Nice. And then after that, the next spot was uh, Las Cienegas. Yep. Mm-hmm. So from there we went sort of back east towards the the grasslands. So mm-hmm. that's really part of the strategy. You got to hit different habitats throughout the day. So we went to the grassland habitat near Sonoida, mm-hmm. up the south entrance of Las Cienegas National Conservation Area. Mm-hmm. And that was great. We had a uh, Chihuahuan raven there, which is very much a, a grassland raven. Mm-hmm. And we had beautiful looks at grasshopper sparrow, yes. which is a really pretty sparrow. I mean, from a distance, they just sort of look like a brown bird. But when you get a good look at them, and then one of my teammates, Chris, got a really nice photo of the one we saw. Beautiful, kind of yellow on the face and ochre on the the head and chest. They're just really pretty. Yeah. It's very subtle colors and details, but they're sure. beautiful bird. And it was singing. Yes. We also got Bottery Sparrow singing. And so those were some key grassland species we got there. Hmm. And those are ones that you're not usually seeing outside of environments like that, right? Absolutely. They're very restricted to sort of that pure grassland habitat like you see in Las Cienegas. Hmm. So then after that, you made your way towards some water. Yeah. So then and now it's getting hot, right? So this yeah. is part of the strategy, too. Now it's getting close to sort of midday. It's really warming up. Birds just tend to go kind of quiet that time of day. So our strategy was to then make a pretty long drive out to Wilcox. Mm-hmm. So Wilcox may not sound right at the offset as a place where you'd see a lot of birds in spring. It's famous for cranes in winter. Correct. But in the spring and all times of year, that Twin Lakes area in sort of right near town, you Mm -hmm. have this large lake uh, right near the golf course, and that can be extremely good for getting totally different birds from anywhere else we went during Birdathon. You get a lot of shorebirds there, water birds you know, ducks, we had really nice looks at American avocet and black neck mm-hmm. stilt. So these are the sorts of birds we didn't get anywhere else sure. on our birdathon. So that really added to our species list. And we had a really nice look too at Bendire's Thrasher, which is mm-hmm. one we've missed more often than we've gotten on a birdathon. Mm. It's not a bird that's very easy to find. I mean Curvebill Thrasher is the one Common. many people will be familiar with because it's like in many people's yards in Tucson yeah. and Phoenix. But Bendire's thrasher is a totally different species. It's a little bit smaller, straighter bill, and pretty restricted to particular areas. And there is a small population in Wilcox, and we did find one sitting on top of a telephone pole and got a nice photo. Hmm. So if someone sees a Bendire's thrasher, are they likely to see it anywhere near the same habitats that a curved bill thrasher might be found? There's a little bit of overlap. When I'm in good Bendire's habitat looking for them, because that's a bird we survey for mm-hmm. sometimes as well, Okay, you will sometimes have curved bill thrashers in there. But they tend to, Bendire's tend to be kind of in these more sparse almost sort of former agricultural areas is where I tend mm. to find them. So you can find some west of Tucson, yeah, kind of near the CAP uh, settling ponds or mm-hmm. kind of down Mile Wide Road west of Saguaro Park West once you get west of the Sonoran Desert Habitat and it becomes a sort of flat, former, retired ag lands. They yeah. like those sorts of areas. Okay. So they're not so much throughout, they're not as widespread as the yeah. curb bills. There's a little bit of overlap though. Okay. And then after all those water birds, now you're at Wilcox. What's the next stop? 
so now it's even hotter because now it's like mid afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> so then we uh, we got some lunch, and then from Wilcox we went back towards the Tucson area. And our strategy then was to do the very late afternoon, which can be some of the quietest times mm. for birding, was to work our way up Mount Lemmon. Okay. So we did this loop of starting in Tucson, and then sort of the strategy was to try to end in Tucson. Yeah. So we went up Mount Lemmon, and that sort of took nearly the rest of our birdathon because mm-hmm. then you're going up through different habitats and looking for different species as you go through sort of the the lower elevations and then up into like desert habitat and then up into like oak and juniper and then up into pine and then up into the highest points on Mount yeah. Lemmon. We ended up at like Summer Haven at the top mm-hmm. by evening time. And uh, we got good birds along the way. We stopped at Rose Canyon Lake. That was really productive for mm-hmm. us. We got some of the warblers we hadn't had yet, like mm-hmm. Grace's warbler, which hangs out in the pines. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we're looking for buff-breasted flycatcher. We did hear it, but didn't really get a very good look at it. But we did hear it. We had great looks at um, Greater Peewee. Mm-hmm. It's one of those birds, <laughs> Greater Peewee. What a name. <laughs> but uh, we had really nice looks and listens. We heard them singing as well, but also mm-hmm. got a really nice look at them. Good. And then that's where you ended the day. Well, sort of. That's where we had planned on ending ending the day. Okay. But that's what happens, right? You get so close to a nice round number because by yeah. then we were at like 153 and we're like, mm-hmm. oh no, we want to get a couple more. So then it was starting to get dark. Yeah. So, but we had already done really well on the owls. So yeah. we decided, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So we went down the mountain before it got totally dark. And then we decided, oh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to pick up a few more species in urban Tucson after mm. dark. So we drove through town, through mm-hmm. Tucson, and we went to Reed Park. Okay. Because we didn't, we hadn't seen double-crested, um, or we hadn't seen any cormorants yet. Oh. So there's some neotropical cormorants that hang out in Reed Park. And so with our really bright flashlights, we were able to see them on the water there. And then we thought, oh, you know, there's also a wood duck that's been hanging around. Mm. Let's see if we can, by chance, find him. He's not always at the pond in the park, but we looked and there he was. He was right there. (laughs) So that was another new species for us. And then we had had a lead, sort of insider information from one of my coworkers at Tucson Audubon, that there was a peregrine falcon nesting on one of the buildings on University of Arizona. Oh, And where we had met at another coworker's house, uh, Matt Griffith's house, uh, where we had met was is pretty close to the university. Yeah. So we're like, okay, we'll go see if we can find that falcon on his nest on the outside of the building, and then we'll call it a night. So we yeah. went to U of A, we went to the right building, and we looked up, and there it was, just sitting there on its nest, wondering why these humans were shining a flashlight <laughs> up at it, because it was you know 80 feet up there. But yeah. we could see it, and that counts, and that's when we decided to, to call it a night then, right around sort of 8.30 p.m. Good way to end. Yeah, it was fun. It was a really nice way to end it. Hmm. What were some trends you noticed this year? Because I know you pay close attention to a lot of those numbers, the statistics of, okay, we saw these kinds of birds here. We saw this many each year. And Mm -hmm. you've been doing this so many years. So what were some things you noticed after digesting some of that data? Yeah, because we get different sort of counts and different, you know, birds we miss and birds we we got year to year. And, And some of that's just based on the fact we switch up our strategy frequently. But I did notice some trends that had nothing to do with our strategy is that some of the habitats seem really quiet, like just fewer species, like fewer individuals of certain species too. Mm-hmm. So like the oak level habitat in particular seemed pretty darn quiet, even in the early morning hours when you would expect a lot mm-hmm. of sound, a lot of birds singing, it was quieter than normal. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely something that really stood out to us. This could be a lingering result of that pretty severe 
uh, drought year we had from 2020 into 2021. Yeah. Not really sure what's causing it, but it really does seem like there's just fewer oak species like the the Hutton's Ferry or birds like that, which we did miss this year. Yeah. Usually it's no problem. They're just calling in Madera Canyon, but we did not pick up a Hutton's Ferry this year. Hmm. And then when you look at some of the numbers, were there any birds where you saw an increase in their numbers? Increase in numbers? I'd say Wilcox was good. Mm -hmm. Like the shorebirds, I think Mm -hmm. we hit that just right. Where the timing maybe was really good. Like the fact we did it maybe a little bit later than we normally do. Like May 7th was a little little later. We usually do it right around May 1st. And I don't know maybe if that made a difference. But the fact we had like phalaropes swimming around in the lake. It was more than I'm used to seeing there. So that was pretty nice. We had some pretty good numbers for that. What were some of the things that went as planned and maybe some things that didn't? There were a few things that really went just like clockwork. It was great. And one of them was the owls. The first, you know, our first thing we tried for the day, looking for some of those nighttime owls. And that was great. And the Don Chorus approach, doing it right sort of at the base of Madera Canyon, that was awesome. We picked up so many species. Yeah. Now, when we went back up the canyon, we had um, something we thought would be an absolute slam dunk didn't happen which is pretty interesting we we drove up back towards the top of the canyon where the road ends at the top and we got out went up carry nation you know the two tenths of a mile that everybody goes up to listen and look for elegant trogon and it was so early it was still like you know 5 45 in the morning it was really early we thought for sure we'd hear elegant trogon calling and that'd be what a great bird to get on your birdathon list And it was so silent up there. It was really oh. quiet. We didn't hear any trogons, which they're up there because people are getting sure. them, you know, as they go up there. But for some reason, they were elsewhere just declining to call that morning. And we did not detect elegant trogon. That was kind of a, we thought for sure we'd get that. We've tried in the past, but always later in the day. So we thought, oh, oh. we'll be there early morning. Sure. We'll get it for sure. And we didn't. So that was, went a little bit sideways. Yeah. After the birdathon, I'm sure you're already thinking about next year and things you might do a little differently or things you're looking forward to. What are some of those thoughts that are already going through your head? So one thing that occurred to me sort of three quarters of the way through the day when we were doing it was we didn't factor in a really good Sonoran Desert spot, Hmm. which is kind of difficult to do, actually, when your strategy is to start at Madera and then go take Box Canyon over to the grasslands, and then to Patagonia, you're not really ever hitting desert habitat. Yeah. So we missed things like uh, Verdon. Oh. Because we never really were in Sonoran. We did go through some Sonoran Desert habitat, obviously, to go up Mount Lemon, but by then it was like 3 o'clock in the it's afternoon, late. and everything's yeah. super quiet, and we didn't have a lot of time. We just sort of stopped like at a gas station to get gas, and we're trying to find a Verdon in the parking lot of the gas station, <laughs> and there were like Poliverde trees, and yeah, yeah. you know, desert habitat nearby but we just it's middle of the day we didn't get a burden and i thought you know what we could have done was before we went over box canyon road from madera canyon road if we had raced a little bit further down towards green valley Hmm. there's a really good spot called desert meadows it would have added you know half an hour to the time which you have to factor in and see if that works because it is kind of tight timing sure and we even have it sort of scheduled out. We're supposed to leave this location by this time and this location by that time. What I would change for next year, I thought our overall loop and strategy was really good. It was really fun. It, it took into account trying to maximize the quietest parts of the day. Mm-hmm. But putting in a stop, even if it's just a quick stop, running around Desert Meadows before heading back towards Box Canyon, I think we would have picked up some of the species we missed. Hmm. That could be a good addition. Yeah. 
And just in case people are wondering, that bird that's calling above us in the background is a curve-bill thrasher. Yes. That's quite Singing vocal. quite a lot. All right, now let's move on to our bird segment, where my guests have a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. And for this episode, Jenny will tell us about the five-striped sparrow, which is one of the birds she mentioned earlier that they saw during the birdathon this year. I thought I had seen one of these, but it was actually a black-throated sparrow at the El Rio Preserve. When I showed you my picture, right away you knew it was not a five-striped sparrow. Can you share with our audience some of the ways that they are different and some of the things you picked up on just from glancing at that picture that you already knew that's a black-throated and not a five-stripe? Sure. It can be a surprisingly tricky ID, and this is something we get queries about a lot at Tucson Audubon, where people will call us up and say, I had a five-stripe sparrow in my yard. And I'm like, oh, can you send me a photo? Because I know it's extremely unlikely that just based on their habitat requirements that there would be one in Tucson uh, or at a place like El Rio. They're very habitat restricted Hmm. to a particular type of thorn scrub habitat. It's a rare bird for the United States. It's the smallest breeding population of any sparrow species in the U.S. since the vast majority of their range is in Mexico. They have only a tiny bit of breeding range that comes into the United States and only in very particular places in Arizona. So that was part of it. But they're also very, they're very similar superficially, but they do have some differences. Mm. So five-striped sparrow is a pretty large sparrow, actually. And they're sort of overall, they're kind of pointy, like mm-hmm. their head slopes down into the point of their bill. They have a very large bill. They do have black and white striping on the face, which is similar to a black-throated yeah. sparrow. But five-striped sparrow is very gray in tone all over its body, where its chest and its sort of upper back and head is mostly gray, a pretty dark gray. And then its back is a really nice kind of chocolatey brown. Mm-hmm. And they have a little bit of white on their lower belly. But mm-hmm. for the most part, they're sort of a gray and brown bird with black and white face striping. Okay. Whereas a black-throated sparrow has sort of light gray on the wings and the top of the head. And then their face has those beautiful patches of black. They're really attractive sparrow. yeah. And they're very much um, in Sonoran Desert habitat. So you see them in Sonoran Desert, often sitting on choya, nesting in sort of, you know, mesquite trees and Palo Verde. And they have the black and white on the face uh, with a beautiful black patch, especially on their chin that goes down into their chest. Mm. But then their whole chest and belly is this really nice kind of pure white. Mm-hmm. They're a very attractive bird. And they're one that is pretty easy to confuse with five stripe if you're looking at just the facial features because they both have the black and white striping. And especially when people get confused when they see young black-throated sparrows, juveniles that don't quite have the full black patch on the, the middle of their face that's coming down into the chest. If they don't have that yet, which the young ones don't, they look even more like five-stripe sparrows. But they're a much smaller sparrow. They're a little more communal. They hang out in these family groups, and they do this little sort of really cute kind of, reminds me of like tiny bells jingling kind of call Mm. that they do. Mm -hmm. And five-stripe tends to be more in solos or in pairs and in this very, very particular habitat type Mm. of like thorn scrub. And then like you mentioned, they might often be found alone or in pairs. Yes. Yeah, so five stripes are not groups. so much communal, not like black-throateds can be, where they get in these these little family groups. Okay. What are they typically feeding on? Most sparrows are very seed and plant-oriented yeah. for mm-hmm. their food. They do take a fair amount of insects, too, especially when they have young in the nest. Okay. So they'll look for any sort of insect they can find, you know, caterpillars, things like that, to feed to the young ones. But they tend to go for seeds. Hmm. When you talked earlier about them being in a very specific habitat, does that have anything to do with the 
types of seeds that are found in that habitat, or is that more of something else? I th- it seems to be a vegetation suite they're looking for. So they're very into places where you find five-striped sparrows tend to also have things like hot bush, mm-hmm. uh, ocotillo, some of these smaller scrubbier trees like little mesquites or kidney wood trees. Mm-hmm. And they seem really tied into topography too. Mm. So they really like canyon slopes, especially if there's a riparian drainage at the bottom, all mm-hmm. of which this all lines up for Box Canyon. Box Canyon has yeah. all these features. And we did see them sort of nibbling on some honeysuckle flowers, the desert honeysuckle right there at the bottom of the canyon. So yeah, I'm not sure. It could well tie into some of the food sources they're looking for, but there's definitely a particular plant suite you see around five-stripe sparrow habitat. Mm. Okay. What kinds of predators might these birds have to worry about? All the sparrows, all the small passerine birds like sparrows and warblers are always worried about falcons. Mm -hmm. So little falcons, especially little falcons like kestrels or merlins in the winter, Mm -hmm. they need to be very aware of those those predators because these are very acrobatic flyers that specialize in taking birds and the small falcons specialize in taking small birds. Correct. So that's always a problem for them. They have some... Paris, uh, they have some uh, predator problems too with their nests. Yes. So they're going to put their nests in pretty low down places. So both sparrows, so uh, black-throated sparrow often nests in like choya, things that are very thorny or mm-hmm. in real dense mesquite, that kind of more protected area. Yeah. Uh, five-stripe sparrow must be nesting in some of like the shrubbery down at the bottom of the creek, but they're yeah. always going to worry about things like snakes uh, getting in or like things like pack rats getting into yeah. their nest because the young are defenseless and, sure. and they'll be taken. So their nests are especially vulnerable. And this is true of like all bird species. Yes. But yeah, little falcons are always a big enemy for, for sparrows. Hmm. So then their primary protection for their nests would just be the density of the brush or yeah. the actual thorns. Yeah, they armor them as much as possible by putting them in a place that's inhospitable like a choya. But they also just really depend on hiding it, stealth. Mm. So if you try to fly under the radar, they carry the, the fecal sacs away. Many birds use this strategy of trying to not have the nest smell like anything so predators oh. don't cue in on it. Uh, they're very stealthy how they approach the nest. Mm-hmm. They sort of take an indirect route into their nest to try to not tip off a predator as to where it's located. Hmm. When they we talk about the actual construction of the nest, are they assembling twigs or what are they what are they using for materials to build their nest? Yeah, they're using mostly vegetation, and mm-hmm. most sparrow nests will use sort of thicker, coarser vegetation for the outside, okay. and then much thinner, softer materials on the inside, like the part where the eggs and, and babies will be. And they'll sure. even incorporate things like feathers mm. into the nest. Will they take their own feathers? Or will they just take feathers that they find? I think they look for feathers for mm. the most part. I think they will use some of their own if they need to, but their first attempt is to find feathers that other larger birds have left, left. around. Huh. When we talk about clutches, what size clutches are we thinking with them? They're pretty small, I think. You know, we're into sort of the the three to five range, range you know? Okay. Yeah. Most sparrows have pretty small nest clutches. Mm-hmm. Now, black-throated sparrows especially, mm-hmm. if the conditions are really good, will nest more than once. Okay. So rather than do a larger clutch, they'll just do multiple nests. Yes. Oh, so at the same time, they might have multiple nests. No, they do them in, in, in sequence. Okay. So okay. they'll finish one, After the and other. then when the young are out of the nest and maybe they're still teaching them, mama might be sitting on new eggs. Okay. Before we move on, is there anything else you want to share about the five-stripe sparrow? Yeah, it was really fun to get five-stripe sparrow on our birdathon on our big day mm-hmm. because there's this like real conundrum 
with a big day with a birdathon? Are we doing quantity of birds over quality? You got to find that balance. Yeah. And looking for something like a five striped sparrow where they're so rare, they're so restricted means you might miss out on a ton of other species if you spend time looking for it. And they're such cool birds. Like I really enjoy five striped sparrow. But if you're spending a lot of time looking for it and you miss out, let's say, on five other species because of it, I mean, every species counts the same for your total. Mm -hmm. So if you miss even something like a pigeon because you saw five striped sparrow, it counts the same. So we really have that conundrum of trying to do quality over quantity or, you know, how to find that balance. And what was so nice this year was that because Five Stripes have been hanging out in Box Canyon, which is much more convenient than their other locations where they were found in the past, still are found, but where we thought they could only be found, places like California Gulch that take much of the day to get to, Mm -hmm. because they're on Box Canyon, which is a a nice shortcut anyway that we'd be traveling, it was so fun to get such a high quality bird on our birdathon without really sacrificing any sort of like quantity you know any sort of sure. it wasn't really a waste of time to get yeah. that bird we weren't really dedicating a huge amount of time to it we got other species too in the can you have to go through that road anyway yeah. it was wonderful to have such a high quality bird show up on a day when we're really thinking about quantity so that yeah. was really fun and we got really nice looks at it too we watched it like a pair of them together fussing around uh, right by the waterfall there, but below the road mm-hmm. where the canyon floor kind of comes up pretty high and then they flew over the road and they were kind of chasing each other up on the slope and sitting in the Ocotillo and singing. And it was a really nice experience. It was nice to spend a few minutes watching a really, really rare, really desirable bird for many visiting birders on a birdathon where you're racing around yeah. on a big day. It was really fun. I bet. Coming up this summer, are there any Tucson Audubon events that you would like to share about? Yeah, we do have our festival coming up. So mm-hmm. the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival uh, is headquartered in Tucson. It is run by the Tucson Audubon Society. And it's in August. Mm-hmm. So if you want full details on that, you can go to our website. We do offer field trips, like van trips to really great locations, really varied locations. And so those are trips that are uh, you have to pay for to be a participant in. But we also do a lot of events at our hub, which is at the Doubletree mm-hmm. in Tucson, uh, right near Reed Park. And we do all sorts of events. We do a lot of free stuff. We have a free nature expo. We do events for kids and families throughout the entire festival. We have speakers who come in and do talks on a range of topics. We do some workshops there. And then we're also going to do a showing of Purple Haze. It's Mm. a documentary about Purple Martins. Mm. That's going to be at the festival as well. So the festival is really fun. So if you want sort of a full list of everything that's going on, just go to the Tucson Audubon website. And I think they've already got the dates and some of the itinerary already up there, right? Yep. Yep. Everything's already scheduled for, for this year's festival. Perfect. Before we go, is there anything else you'd like to share? Yeah, I'd like to ask if if anyone out there listening to this spends any time in Sonoran Desert habitat, if you see a particular bird that we're doing a big project on right now, and these are desert purple martins. Mm. If you're familiar at all with purple martins in the eastern U.S. or in the Midwest, those really popular birds, people love purple martins. They nest in those big complexes like birdhouses in people's yards, like really big ones that people put up flagpoles in their yard (laughs) or like the white gourds that many people are familiar with from the eastern U.S. This is the same species, but a different subspecies that we have out here in uh, southern Arizona. Mm -hmm. And this is the desert purple martin. And they nest in woodpecker cavities in saguaro cactus. Mm. So they're really restricted to nesting in saguaros. As far as we know, they've never been documented using a nest box versus the eastern martins that 
seem to almost exclusively use nest boxes. This subspecies is uh, more wild, nesting in Sonoran Desert habitat, and they're really picky about where they nest. It's not Mm -hmm. everywhere. You don't get them up in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. They're around the Sonoran Desert, around Tucson. They're not really very urban. Even Mm -hmm. if you have big saguaros in urban Tucson, they don't really come so much into urban Tucson. They'll come into suburban areas. Uh, There's a big group down in Salrita. There's some that hang out at Greasewood Park west of Tucson. There's Mm -hmm. a population there. I've seen them along like Old Soldier Trail on the eastern side of Tucson. They're in Saguaro Park east and west. They're in Tucson Mountain Park. They're in really high quality Sonoran Desert habitat and they nest in saguaros. Now they arrive back in Southern Arizona on migration in May. They're very late arrival Mm. birds and their whole nesting strategy is timed around the monsoon. Mm. So if you are out hiking and you see a saguaro with some birds twittering and chasing around it. The males are very dark. They look almost black from a Mm. distance. These are swallows. They're really large swallows. And you'll often see them in a male-female pair where the male is very dark, looks almost black. He looks a bit shiny blue. If you get him in the right light, he's a little bit iridescent into the sort of dark blue. And the female is kind of gray into brown, but she's the same size and shape as him. And they're often sitting together on top of their chosen nesting saguaro. Mm. They don't lay any eggs until July, but they hang around their saguaro through late May into June, through Mm. June. And then they actually will nest in July and August Mm. when the monsoon moisture, because they're very much insect eaters. So they hunt dragonflies and all sorts of aerial insects. They're really good flyers and they're pretty vocal. If you want to hear what they sound like, if you just go to our website, we have a video of them, of martins sitting on saguaros. If you want to see how they move and what they sound like. But if you see purple martins sitting on saguaros when you're out hiking around, it would be great if you could just snap a photo of that saguaro, like on your on your smartphone, snap a photo of that saguaro with martins in it if possible, but if not, just the saguaro. And then if you put it into iNaturalist as a purple martin, sighting into mm-hmm. iNaturalist. I have a project set up in iNaturalist where those sightings will be um, sort of gathered and I can access them. Mm. And then your saguaro that you found with Purple Martins will contribute to our project to try to figure out where they're nesting. Oh, cool. Well, be sure to do that if we're on, out on a hike and happen to see some. I'd like to thank Jenny for joining us again, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow or subscribe. And while you're there, please leave a rating or review to help more people discover the podcast. For pictures of some of the birds we discussed on the podcast, including the five-striped sparrow, please visit at Looking at Birds Podcast on Instagram. And until next time, keep looking at birds. Bye.